Our lives are a continual process of change. How we handle the expected and unexpected events of life depends on the stories we tell ourselves. If you'd like to explore how your internal story impacts your personal journey, the way that tale interacts with your community, and to change that story, and with it, your life, I invite you to join me in the Storytelling for Personal Transformation class. Together we'll walk through what I've used as the descendant of Appalachian storytellers to recreate myself and a sense of place year after year. Combining that with more than a decade of experience helping people tell their story, we'll also pull from pop culture, fiction, and mythology to see the connections between you, the world, and what you love. Enrollment is now open. Find out more at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash storytelling. Now through the end of October is the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser, and your support is needed if the Permaculture Podcast is to continue for another year. Give a one-time donation online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. By mail, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Or you can become a recurring supporter by joining the Permaculture Podcast Patreon community at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Eric Perrow as we catch up on what he's been doing since we last saw each other in 2016. Quite a bit has changed since then, as he's now living in Finland running a biotech company that cultivates chaga fungi, manages forests holistically, and explores the nutritional qualities, health benefits, and medicinal properties of mushrooms. Though he's now in the for-profit world, he continues to bring the spirit of permaculture and connection to the natural world to all of his work. So enjoy this conversation with Eric, and I'll join you again after. Then, Eric, you and I have known each other for a long time now, as far as this, this work of the Permaculture Podcast goes, doing interviews many years ago about your work around natural building, and then we met several times when you were in Kentucky, came down, visited, recorded some things live. But since then, our lives have gone in interesting and varied directions. I've relocated now to Northern Virginia, and you're in Finland, and no longer working in the world of natural building in the same way. Can you give us a bit of an update on what you're doing now, and we can take the conversation from there? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Yeah, it feels good to connect again. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I think last we talked was, God, was it eight years ago? I was in Portugal at the time. I remember I was like thinking of that moment, actually, right before this conversation started. I was upstairs in a friend's house recording the first ever interview we did. And it was on the push and natural building and the work we were doing there. And yeah, very exciting times in my life. <laughs> you know, traveling around and, and talking to folks about natural building who never heard about it before. Educating a lot of people on very old styles of how they can connect with nature through natural building. And yeah, I had a really nice time. And uh, yeah, I would say that, that that side of my life is not over. I'm still really enjoying natural building myself and I'm still educating plenty of people here locally, but my passion has moved on to a bit more, I would say complex things in the realm of biotechnology. And that's something that's really, yeah, now I guess very interesting for me and, you know, life leads you to Finland sometimes. And I was here, oh man, it's four years now I've been in Finland. It was actually where you saw us in Kentucky, we had bought it was a pretty large piece of land. It was like 60 something acres. And we were developing a very large, uh, 
food forest there, a very tight community around, a lot of permaculture projects. We really thought that that would be our, our home where we put roots down. And uh, my wife at the time, she was um, my late wife, she was Finnish. And we actually went and visited her family and came to Finland, show her our, their new granddaughter, this kind of thing. And we were walking in the woods and, you know, I took my shoes off like I tend to do. And I, I just, I connected with the nature so strongly. And, and I just, you know, you have these clairvoyant kind of moments where the feeling is overwhelming and you know what you have to do. <laughs> Within less than, I don't know, eight months of buying a, a large property in Kentucky and starting to do the permaculture design and everything, I just knew that this is, this is my home and this is the forest and this is the, the ecosystem that, that calls me. And I still feel that way now, four years later. She thought I was crazy, you know. She didn't want to go back to her home country even, but I did. And uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying it now here. So now in Finland, we, I started a, a very nice company with some other co-founders called Kappa Biotech. And we're focused on innovations to make ecosystems and humans healthier through fungi. So yeah, I'd love to talk to you a bit more about what, <laughs> what the crazy stuff we're doing there. I don't know that I remember that that transition was that quick from the time that we we saw each other last and you were working on that property and then the move to Finland, but I'm still in touch and follow the work happening down there and so still see the development that's happening in Kentucky with Michael and the rest of the folks who remain there. And so I'm still fascinated by that. But when it comes to your current work, you know, I've had some mycologists on the show over the years talking about the ways that biotechnology and fungi in particular could be really revolutionary when it comes to things like human health and nutrition, the way that we might use these materials when it comes to fighting bacterial infections, potentially even viruses and creating something like a, an antibiotic or vaccines through these different fungal exudates. And so I'm interested in hearing, you know, what are you doing in Finland to develop these kinds of ideas and how are you taking this work in your own particular direction? Yeah, that's a good question. One of my co-founders is a guy by the name Lorin van Logan Liebenstein, and it's a serious mouthful. And he's a mycologist from Austria who also found himself in Finland. He was running the um, Austrian Fungal Research Center, and we kind of stole him away and made him a co-founder of the company. And, you know, we started the company because... He was very inspired about a lot of different things that fungi could do to help save the world, you know, all the things that you probably have heard about and your listeners know. And uh, just, it's very inspiring. And, you know, I got really into reading some material by Paul Stamets and other various authors in the space. And I said, yeah, okay, let's do this. Let's start working on these projects. And I looked around and I tried to find some proactive companies or organizations or anybody who was doing a lot of that work. And I just couldn't find it. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of information out there that fungi can do a lot of this microremediation work or can be really important type of uh, medicine for people and all this kind of thing. And it was just very difficult to find projects or methods that are really working and are, are doing things in practice. So we formed our company around kind of this ethos of let's move really fast Let's try stuff really quickly. Let's fail really fast if we're going to fail. And let's experiment and prototype. And we chose a, a model like a for-profit company, which is the first that I've done in, in terms of my kind of permaculturally minded projects. 
to be able to facilitate that. And it really has opened my eyes to this as a model and as a way to more rapidly see progress. And so for me, it's been, a, it's been an incredible experience and, it, and one that's been very helpful in sort of me re, reintroducing myself with this kind of relationship with these uh, corporate entities as a tool. So yeah, my God, Scott, where do you want to start? I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a hundred things we could talk about, but I think some interesting stuff that our, our company's doing is the first project that we wanted to really tackle was, I'm sure you're aware of a, of a mushroom called Chaga. And that's one that I wanted to talk with you about because I've only ever had Chaga for like a week when I was spending some time with some friends in Missouri, they had some nice chunks of it. And more or less, we would start every day with this heavy, rich, like somewhere between a chaga tea and a chaga soup. And yes. <laughs> uh, it was just, it was lovely. But everyone I know who was getting it in the United States, it was all wild crafted. And so still kind of in limited supply, still kind of emerging. And since then, like I haven't had any chaga, but still have these really like fond memories of that as a part of my diet for that time. Really enjoyed the flavor. It was a great alternative to tea and coffee. So yeah, could you dig in a little bit about that? And I'd love to hear what you're doing to like harvest that, whether it's wildcrafted, if you've found a way to cultivate it. So chaga is, is an incredible adaptogenic herb, amazing mushroom, incredible for our immune systems. It's also the highest in antioxidants gram for gram of anything on the planet. So if we think about, you know, how our bodies age and how our, you know, our cells are constantly dying and having to be reborn again, according to RNA and DNA. And as free radicals are, are flying around our bodies, you know, they're bumping into those strands of RNA and DNA. And if they get a little bit damaged, when they go to get reformed again, uh, it might not be perfect. And then hence, we have not such great hair or skin, but also lungs and heart and liver and all those important bits. So when we think about, you know, our bodies and, and our transition on this planet, how we can maybe not live to 150 or 200 or something, but how could we have a very high quality of life while we're still here? How could we have a very functioning body? And a high antioxidant regimen, I think, is a very important one to that. And so chaga, very naturally, is just, it's just really a superfood. And in a way, wild crafting is an incredible technique for cultivating and, and harvesting and taking this, this medicine, precisely because how chaga works kind of chemically and its relationship with the birch tree where it grows is that it can take compounds from the birch tree and actually modify or change those into a form that's bioavailable to humans. So for instance, it takes a compound in birch trees called butylinic acid, changes it to butolic acid, which is then bioavailable for humans as an antioxidant compound. So what's really important when looking at chaga is, you know, it needs to be something grown on living birch trees. <laughs> so that's great. And like you said, most of the material is wild forage. But what we're seeing, of course, because of this really big boom in demand for chaga as a food supplement is that, you know, it's becoming more scarce. It takes up to 20 years for chaga from point of inoculation to start to produce a sizable conch that we could harvest for medicine. You know, it's not an annual, it's not a, and it doesn't grow very fast and it doesn't choose every birch tree. So we're starting to see that it's very difficult now to find chaga in Maine, Northeast uh, US. It's uh, not commercially available really in Michigan anymore. Mainly the only commercial viable options for foraging is in Alaska basically now left in the US. So it's getting pushed more north. 
It's getting pushed more deeper into the wilderness. Forages are having to go farther and farther away to find it. The same is happening, you know, all over the world, Finland as well. So it grows in northern climates. It's growing on birch trees. So same in Finland, same in Siberia, Russia, all these places. And we started to look at the demand, which is increasing, you know, compoundedly 10% per year. So a huge, huge increase in demand with no change in how the supply of this chaga is going to be delivered to people. So we thought, okay, if this is an important enough medicine, we have to find a way to effectively take a biotech approach here, not a technical approach. So we don't want to go into a lab and say, okay, how can we replicate chaga kind of artificially in a Petri dish, something like this? How can we replicate it? Because it just doesn't work like that. You know, it, it just needs those compounds from the living birch tree. It needs the birch, uh, we call it mahla in Finland, but the birch sap, the very, very, very nutrient-dense sap. So we said, okay, let's, what's the biotech approach? Well, we observed for a very long time how chaga is growing. We contacted many, many different universities, many different scientists, a lot of people who are working in the space. And we just wanted to get to know, you know, how we could do this in a really responsible way. The result that we came to was, you know, let's actually wild cultivate it. You know, let's get out there in actual forests and let's uh, implant chaga into those trees. So let's not leave it up for chance in the sense that we're waiting for two spores from, a, from chaga and this is oblicus, the Latin name of the species to sort of land in a perfect uh, cut in a birch tree and then, you know, join together and start a new colony. Let's just start it from mycelium. Let's inoculate these living trees. So over some years, we developed a really commercially viable way to do that. We put together a really good division of our company called Kappa Forest. And we work now with over 100 forest owners per year. And effectively, for us, it takes about eight to 10 years till the harvest is ready. And we're producing upwards of 60,000 kilos dried chaga per annum that we can really supply a lot of people. So we are the world's largest cultivator of chaga and done in a completely regenerative, completely sustainable way where, you know, we're also doing well, we're in that forest with our customers. We also have a, a biodiversity package. So we're able to help look at their forest and go, okay, there's actually like five or six different fungal species that are not prevalent in this forest. It really should be. And we can inoculate those at the time that we're doing that work with the chaga. We also have been working on rare and endangered species and making sure that those also have a permanent place in the landscape here in Finland. So, you know, we take a look at that whole holistic picture and we go, okay, how can we not only like solve just this one problem, but how can we then ensure that how this forest is going to be managed is done so in a really responsible way. So for instance, you know, a lot of our forest owners, they are FSC certified and all of our forest owners are not really allowed to clear cut their forests. So what we can ensure is a, you know, really nice ecological type of, you know, forest management happening because we got involved with them. Again, taking that whole systems approach to forest management, working with them, as you say, so that they're not clear cutting, restoring the ecosystem while you're there, and being able to turn all these tools that you're developing as a business towards caring for the earth in this process of creating a product that you're then able to dry, produce into other materials and sell in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think it's it's also beautiful for, for forest owners. You know, in Finland, it's a, it's a really cool country in the sense that 
you know, you can go to, so you, you fly into Helsinki, you're at the airport, you take a cab, you know, you're in uh, this area of, of Helsinki called Kallio, which means bedrock. You'll notice being in Finland that almost every area is named after some natural feature. So you get to Kallio, you go to the most hipster cafe you can find, right? And you ask a, a barista for cortado or cappuccino, whatever your favorite, you know, coffee drink is. She comes wearing, you know, full sleeves of tattoos. You know, you can picture this woman, really hipster. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And, you know, you ask her how many, you know, species of uh, fungi could you identify in the wild? And she'll list off at least 10 that her grandmother taught her to forage. And that every summer, she goes to her summer house or her family's summer house in the countryside, and she actually collects those fungi. The Finnish people, they have um, such an identity that's based in nature, such an identity that's based in Finland that even, you know, they might look like they're very city people. You might see them in Helsinki looking very fashionable and being very trendy, but, you know, their roots are still in the forest and now we're outside of Helsinki, at least. It's a really interesting story that we can help, you know, navigate here and, and sort of intertwine and weave into the, the Finnish mentality that, you know, maybe we're not here to do some exploitive, cut all the trees down, take all the wood out, turn it into paper pulp. Maybe what we actually could be doing here is really regenerative and uh, a healthy kind of forest management for this ecosystem, as well as creating really beautiful medicine for people at the same time. With what you're doing with the cultivation of chaga, is that something that the strains that you are working with are specific to Finland and those birch trees? Or is this a model that, as you say, there's a decline in you know, Maine and the Midwest, the United States, and so it's becoming rare. Is this something that Kappa would be looking to work with other partners to bring this idea and technology to other places? Or are you still really focused specifically on your work in the forests of Finland? We are very focused here in Finland. And as a, as a company, you know, it took us a lot of time to technically understand how the Finnish ecological system works, how the Finnish forestry works, how it responds to different things. We've done models with how dense, for instance, can we put chaga, that it's not going to just start to overtake the forest. And, you know, we've done a lot of studies and we've been really sensitive. And I think trying to just copy paste what we've done here, of course, wouldn't work. Now, that being said, you know, we have been contacted by the U.S. Uh, Department of Forestry that's seen our work and are interested in something like this for the U.S. forest system as well. But again, you know, it would be out of our expertise we could do the technical side on the mycology. We could help people understand that. But I think it's up for some entrepreneurs, maybe listening to this podcast right now, you know, or the government to really decide that this is something that's very really interesting and, and could push forward. In general, I think medicinal fungi, specifically but fungi in general, they're a huge part of the forest ecosystem. And how, how can we help enhance the ability that it has for ecosystem health how can we generate some nice medicine or some commercial activities from that as well? And I think that that's a really interesting question to ask in general. And I think wherever your listeners might be listening, you know, they've got a forest outside of them probably. There's probably some fungi living there. Probably that fungi that's living there, if it's a polypore, most likely it's not poisonous to us. And uh, <laughs> we only, we're only working with like seven really medicinal species of fungi right now. You know, three mainly, five generally, and seven for some people. <laughs> How many polypores are there in the world? Millions, you know. 
so I think that there's a lot, lot of innovation around here, a lot of, a lot of uh, scientific pushing, a lot of really incredible work that can be done at harnessing the power of fungi generally. And then to take that more locally could be an incredible work by team of companies or team of researchers for years to come. Because basically what, what all fungi have are compounds called beta-glucans, and they're beta-1316-D-glucans, and they're incredibly effective at being immunomodulatory or adaptogenic in the sense that they can bypass the gut, go right through the large intestinal wall, and they go right into your you know, other, other side of that intestinal wall, and they start to communicate to aspects of your immune system, killer T cells, cytokines, and really start to help your body activate maybe its immune system to look out for long-term inflammation or other illnesses that are in your body. And pretty much every mushroom has these beta-glucans. Some just have very special ones that are very targeted to do very special things. Because at the end of the day, humans are more closely related to mushrooms than we are to plants. Our DNA is more close to, to mushrooms than we are to plants. We breathe oxygen just like mushrooms do. We exhale CO2 just like mushrooms do. And the only real deviation that we took in terms of our immune system is that you know humans have a more cellular a rigidity, a structure-based immune system. It's very difficult for viruses and things like this to actually go through our cell walls, whereas mushrooms have developed a very chemical-based immune system where we have receptors or we can use those chemicals. So in a way, I like to think of mushrooms as kind of like an outsourced little pharmaceutical factories, <laughs> you know, like a very natural outsourced pharmaceutical factories that are just sitting there, you know, chugging and pumping and being able to make this beautiful, beautiful medicine, I mean, for themselves, but, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, we've learned to effectively use that medicine. I mean, I think one of the oldest human remnants that we found is this, uh, maybe you're familiar with this, Otzi in uh, the Tyrol area of Northern Italy. And what did he have around his neck? Birch polypore, which is effectively helping, it's stopping like a, any sort of worms or bacteria infection that you might have. So in a way, we've kind of been biohacking our biology and augmenting our immune system through the help of uh, chemicals from mushrooms for really as long as we know and have evidence of human beings interacting with their ecology. And we have all of this information about indigenous cultures and their relationships with the ecosystem and the medicine that they were creating for themselves and their communities. And with what you were saying about the medicinal mushrooms that we're using now, the ones that come to mind are chaga, shiitake, and turkey tail. What are the ones that come to mind for you? As I say, my knowledge is kind of limited, but what yeah. are you seeing as the medicinal mushrooms that are being used worldwide? By far, the majority of the Chinese traditional medicine has been very strong in Asia for many thousands of years. And Chinese traditional medicine really kind of put into a framework the medicinal mushrooms. You know, so a lot of these medicinal mushrooms are, they date back thousands of years in China for their use cases. They were used by emperors. Many of them are very rare, you know, reishi included. And they all had kind of different use cases that were outlined to help with different ailments. So what? Where are we now, right? So basically through the, the work that we've been doing with Chaga, I was uh, nominated to the executive committee for the International Medicinal Mushroom Society, which has been very exciting to be part of. So now that I'm a chair on that committee, you know, we're able to look at a lot of the 
you know, scientific research. And I'm attending the International Medicinal Mushroom Congress also that's happening every two years. And we're looking at all the scientific papers that are coming out. And we've been able to identify seven, let's say, main species of mushrooms that there's an overwhelming body of scientific studies showcasing various efficacy and use cases, as well as being able even to drill down to what compounds are in those mushrooms are really activating those different kind of medicinal benefits that we're finding. So mainly, I'd say the biggest, biggest interest that we're seeing in both the EU population as well as, as the US is uh, mainly with chaga, with reishi, and lion's mane, I would say. And then pretty close after that, it, it comes cordyceps, shiitake, turkey tail, maitake. So that's, I'd say, those are like the main ones. You know, and all of them do a little bit different. They all have beta-glucans, very powerful beta-glucans, which are very immunodepogenic. But then they all have kind of secondary metabolites, which do something very interesting as well. So for instance, shiitake you mentioned, which you're familiar with, it's an incredible mushroom in the sense that it's got a compound called L-ergothyrene, which recently has had a, a patent even filed on that compound in, in the state of California for its ability to sort of slow down a virus's ability to sort of start to take over your cells. So a very incredible compound. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, shiitake mushroom, I grow it actually in my backyard. I commune with this mushroom quite a lot. And, you know, I see it has a lot of the same ailments actually that humans have. So it's creating a lot of medicine that, that it needs to help, <laughs> you know, live in this modern day world, just like we are. So l also can be used by, by the human, human cells to strengthen those cell walls. So that's an incredible kind of secondary benefit. So when you think of, okay, what are the, what's the use case, appropriate use case of shiitake? And I think that that appropriate use case would be, we actually scheduled this, I think, two days previous, wasn't it, Scott? I think it was two days earlier. And I actually, for the first time in years, just felt really bad. I felt really bad. And <laughs> I mean, what did I do? I just took lots of shiitake. You know, okay, something's happening. My body's not feeling good. Maybe I'm getting attacked by a virus. What do I got to do? I, I just pump my body full of shiitake. And this goes to show a lot of, you know, products you see in the market now are blends of all the mushrooms. I personally don't like that so much because as each of these mushrooms are so specific and unique in how they work with our bodies within terms of their compounds, I think it's really important to take them individually. But that's just kind of, or take them as maybe a two, a set of two or something. But that's just my opinion. Then you have... Like you also mentioned turkey tail. I've been in Japan a couple times now for work in this mycology field. A lot of very advanced biotech companies working in Japan and working on various compounds for human health. In Japan, if you come down with breast cancer, I mean, effectively what they do is they give you turkey tail medicine. They give you a turkey tail extract because it has a beta-glucan compound called PSK, which is shown to be incredibly effective at stopping breast cancer. So you'll actually get a prescription. You'll go to a pharmacy. Pharmacist will <laughs> give you a bottle of turkey tail extract. And that's part of your regimen for, for helping with the, the breast cancer. So again, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be confused saying here that I think if some of your listeners have breast cancer, they should go out and get turkey tail. It's, you know, depending on what else you're doing and other medicines you're taking, of course, it can kind of can complicate things or interact in a way that's maybe not desirable. But that's according to how they're, they're doing it in Japan. That's how it's working quite well for their public health system. And that's where is this conversation, we're looking at kind of an overview of the different ways that these mushrooms are entering into the healthcare system, the way that they're being used for functional medicine and to 
support our overall health, that this is still a conversation that you should be having with your doctor, that they're not necessarily in any way a panacea for a particular issue, but rather can be part of your overall lifestyle or a regimen that you could be prescribed by your doctor. That of course, this doesn't take the place of medical advice. Take that time, talk with your doctor and develop something that works best for you where you are. That's a great thing to mention. I would say also on top of that, just do your own research too, you know, and make sure you know what you're doing. Because I think in some part of me, you know, rests a lot in, you knew me back when I was doing natural building work. And, and to me, I, I don't think I'm doing anything different right now. And okay, I'm working with mushrooms and I, I have to wear a tie some days, you know, and I've, now we have 30 something employees in the company. And before we had, you know, five volunteers <laughs> making the push and yeah, things have changed, but I don't say I'm doing anything actually different. You know, I was on a mission back then and still am now to find connection and connection with nature specifically is a big part of my path. And I think that, you know, we can connect with nature in many different ways. You know, natural building is one to go out in the forest, harvest your own wood, plane that wood, t- touch it the whole time, you know, go collect water reed for thatching, make your round pegs for kind of nailing your house together with wood. You know, that's a very connected art. You know, you're communing with other people. A lot of the times it's, it's heavy work. You have to have your friends come over. So that was a really, really interesting kind of practice for myself. And now I see the same thing. I mean, now I'm having a very intimate connection with the fungal kingdom and I'm taking them actually into my body and I'm allowing them to actually not like normal food, not just go through my stomach and my, you know, large and small intestine and we suck out a couple of them, vitamins and minerals and protein or whatever it might be. Now I'm actually in a very intimate way, making a very high potency extract in our company and allowing almost all of that actually to go right through the GI tract and start to actually have conversations and change metabolic processes in my body in certain ways. And again, I mean, that this is nothing that humans haven't done for thousands of years. So this is a long track record of humans finding better health or, or higher levels of connection through this kind of uh, communing with the fungal kingdom. So I have a, how do you say, a large sense of safe feeling, right? In this kind of thing that there's many, many people who've walked this path before me. I feel in some ways that over the last several centuries that we've just lost some of that connection and being the descendant of, of Appalachian hill folk, I still remember the stories of my grandmother and the ways that she would talk about going into the woods to harvest certain things that her oldest child, one of my aunts going, and we would forage for mushrooms from time to time throughout my childhood. But then somewhere along the way, that story became one that, you know, mushrooms were dangerous or poisonous, or it was hard to identify them. And though I know that there are some destructive plants and mushrooms that are dangerous if we ingest them, but there are so many more that are out there that with a little bit of time and care, we can learn to identify, learn to harvest and rebuild these connections in ways that are safe as well as beneficial. Yeah, there's a big, a big fear specifically in England, you know, of fungi in general, that it's going to kill us and things like this. So it's, it's interesting how a relationship that's been so synergistic and helpful and, and beautiful for so many thousands of years in the last uh, couple hundred or something could take such a disastrous turn for the opposite. Maybe it's fear, I don't know, you know, but I think it's a beautiful path to find that connection with what with nature, however people do that. You remind me in mentioning that fear, I had planted some wine cap mushrooms, stropharia, 
in some garden paths and it took a while before the conditions were just right for them to fruit. And I was away for a couple of days when they finally fruited and a family member came over, saw them. And because of their interaction with fungi thought that it was something dangerous. And so that they kicked them all over and then <laughs> bagged them up and threw them away and they never fruited again. And so <laughs> all that wow. went into it and there they were gone. But one thing that I wanted to ask, you were mentioning there about, you know, earlier on you were talking about all the, the ways that the chaga extracts chemicals from the birch tree to produce bioavailable nutrients. It was making me think about how plants can harvest, you know, mineral nutrients and turn them into something that's bioavailable for us. With what you said about the extract, are you looking for something that is as whole fruit extract as possible from the mushrooms? to gain not only the chemicals that you are aware of have a beneficial use for us, as well as all of the other like micronutrients and microchemicals that might not be identified so that we can take in as much of that as possible through your work? That's an incredible, incredibly wise question. One that I think you know the answer to, but I think that's, a, that's an incredible perspective to have. And, and absolutely, that's what we do. You know, we're not a pharmaceutical company. We're very clear about that. Depending on what ingredient and what mushroom we're working with, we're anywhere from a food supplement company to a nutraceutical company, where nutraceutical can mean we can have some, you know, FDA or EFSA in the European Union approved kind of health claims with what we do. Or food supplement is, you know, this is what we do. These are the compounds that are inside. And uh, we can't really say anything of the efficacy, actually. And what that means is that to be a pharmaceutical company, effectively, you're taking something like the bark of a tree. And you're going through a very extensive extraction process and distilling process, and you're making a product like aspirin. And you're looking just for that one compound or two compounds that you can synthesize or, or extract in a very cheap method to produce just that one compound. Or you might even learn that compound's sort of chemical recipe and just actually make that out of other chemicals in the laboratory. So that's not our company's philosophy. It's not our company's philosophy precisely because of what you just said, that when we look at the science, our company has a, a lead research analyst who works for us, and his job is mainly to just look at new studies coming out and put those on a historical context to show you know, what has changed over the years in our understanding of different compounds and related to fungi. And for instance, you know, there's a cordyceps, which we haven't talked about, is a perfect example of this. Some of your listeners might be taking cordyceps. It's a very popular fungi to take in the U.S. because it's helping a lot with energy levels. And we could always use more energy, it seems like. And it's, it's doing so in a way that it's actually, it's one of the only compounds that's actually producing ATP in your body, right? So ATP is, of course, what our cells use for energy. So it's not like a stimulant such like coffee or something that's sort of, you know, neurostimulant making you have a feeling of more energy or excited level where there's a crash. It's actually just sort of causing a trigger, a catalyst for your body to produce more ATP. So it's a very clean type of energy feeling, really incredible medicine. At one point, we identified a compound in Cordyceps militaris, which is the species. It's called Cordycepine. And Cordycepine was, of course, then deemed to be responsible for this phenomenon of the ATP production. Then we started to learn that, okay, Cordycepine is actually part of an adenosine family where there's a few other compounds that are also taking part there, okay? So it's more complex than what we think. 
And that's just always how this goes. And over, over 5, 10, 20 years, as our reductionist view of science, where we try to find, you know, we try to take everything, we try to distill it down to its simplest form, sometimes is just not the best at explaining phenomena. Where, in fact, uh, just like a you know, forest ecosystem, it can be a really complex thing. Why cordyceps militaris makes us have more energy? You can't say that just because of one compound, right? And I think this is just true over and over again. Same with, for instance, lion's mane, a mushroom that we haven't talked about either, which is incredible for neurogenesis. It has a scientifically proven NGF, or nerve growth factor. I know, Scott, you're, you're older than 30 now as well. You know, as you're probably well aware, and your listeners too, you know, when you start to hit 30, your brain cells start to degenerate. Sometimes you forget where your keys are, you mix your kids' names up, this kind of thing starts to happen, and, and it's a slow decline. And when you're old enough, of course, I was unfortunate enough to see my own grandfather struggle with Parkinson's kind of in his late age. And, you know, lion's mane is one thing that shows a lot of promising results with uh, over 10 human clinical trials with uh, being able to actually create a phenomenon called neurogenesis in your brain. You can stop the degeneration, but can start regeneration as well and help to ward off a lot of those, a lot of those kind of nastier brain diseases that we associate with old age. And again, what is the compound doing that? Wouldn't the pharmaceutical industry love to know that? So there's been lots of studies on compound called arenacines. Then there, then there was an understanding that actually there's arenacine A through maybe G. And that maybe some of them actually have a negative effect, some have a positive effect. Well, they actually, maybe they're working together, you know? And it's just every year we're finding out more and more information that there might actually be a lot of times with plant medicine as well, or almost probably anything really, that there's kind of this entourage effect, we call it, where the sum is greater than the parts. And so that's our company's philosophy and you know, many food supplement companies' philosophy, I would say, that you know, we're looking at, at that whole holistic package that you know, maybe seemingly unrelated things are actually quite related. That's a very good question. And so when I talk about extraction, when I'm talking about, like you, you mentioned before, you were making a tea with chaga uh, when you were in Missouri, that's technically an extraction. You're using hot water to extract some compounds and some, some triterpenes and some really nice uh, compounds from that chaga chunk. And maybe your friends told you that you could reuse that chaga chunk like six times. Well, what happens at the seventh time? Well, there's nothing left to extract. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of been extracted fully. So, okay, you kind of discard it. Basically, there's just fiber there. So our company does basically what your friends were doing in Missouri, just on a much quicker pace and really effective. So what we're looking for when we talk about extraction is mainly two things. We want to fully pull out of the fibrous material, all those compounds of interest, all those interesting things. We want to make sure that they have something to bind to, that they can stay there. And then what we also really want to ensure is that the end material is very highly bioavailable for our bodies. So that even if it's, let's say, 5% beta-glucans, that all 5% of those 5 you know, beta-glucans can actually be used by our body. So that's kind of the extraction process that we've developed. And our company's done, we're kind of leading the industry, actually, in our extraction process. So we're using a technology called ultrasonic-assisted extraction, which is actually much more effective at breaking apart these chitin cell walls to access these compounds that are inside of it making the material really highly bioavailable. So that's something interesting when we think about, okay, these are traditional medicines, right? 
these have been used for thousands of years in China. And mainly what they've done there is they've done hot water extract and sometimes alcohol. And alcohol and hot water are effectively solvents when they're used like this. And they're dissolving the chitin cell wall. Well, they're just not completely effective. So maybe 70, maybe 80% effective, according to the literature. Whereas ultrasonic assisted extraction can go up to more than 90. So we're, of course, interested in this traditional medicine. We're, of course, excited about it. We're excited about the use case. It brings a lot of inspiration of what fungal species we should be looking at, for instance. But the question, of course, always remains in our back of our heads, how can we improve that? So we're not like afraid of technology in that way. We're very embraceful. We want to make the best product possible. And by doing so, that allows you to make better use of those natural materials that you're harvesting from the forest. You don't have to inoculate as many trees, use as many acres of land. By improving the efficiency of your extraction process, you can get more from less material. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Well, Eric, it's been great to catch up with you today. As I say so often, these interviews always end too soon. Maybe it'd be great to have you back on here in a couple of months. We can have another conversation about the breadth of medicinal mushrooms and what you've learned in the meantime. But in the time that we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, thanks, Scott. I do. I'd say take your shoes off. <laughs> I'd say go in the forest and I'd say see how you could connect with your ecosystem more and just ask that question and maybe see where that leads you. You'd be surprised. Well, Eric, thank you for that and everything else that you shared with us today and for joining me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Happy to talk again soon. And that was my friend, Eric Perrow. Find out more about him and his biotech work at kappabiotech.com with kappa spelled K-A-A-P-A find their line of single-species extracts, including chaga, lion's mane, reishi, and shiitake at kappahealth.com, and see what he and the team are doing with mushroom cultivation in Finland at nordicmushrooms.com. You'll find links to all of those in the show notes, as well as to the other interviews and conversations with Eric, including our first time together talking about the push all those years ago, and roundtable community conversations recorded when I visited Eric and friends while he was still living in Kentucky. In the episode Community and Traditions, Eric facilitated the conversation when I stepped away to call my children, so you can hear him in the host seat for a bit when you listen to that conversation. Though they're all different from the interview today, I'm sure you'll like those glimpses into the history of the show and hearing more about Eric's worldview and philosophy about connection to place through engagement. Long before I went off to university to study computer science and work as a radio DJ, the skills and experiences that led me to create this show, I wanted to be a medical doctor who incorporated holistic health, clinical herbalism, and plant-based options into my practice. As a teenager, I attended classes and workshops, grew a small herbarium, made tinctures and extracts, and read whatever I could get my hands on when it came to plants as medicine. Unable to find a program that I felt fit this particular path at that time, it was the mid-90s after all, I went in a different direction. Still, I continue to hold a broad, whole-person approach to how we can create, sustain, and promote our health and well-being. Now, in addition to working regularly with my doctor on preventative medicine and to resolve acute issues, with the ongoing research that shows the benefits of fungi for human health, part of my wellness plan includes incorporating mushrooms into my diet. As we closed out the interview, I'd also like to continue the conversation with Eric 
to go further into the world of medicinal mushrooms and see if something like an extract or tincture is right for my overall goals. If you're using mushrooms in your life for food or medicine, or have a question you'd like included in a follow-up interview with Eric about medicinal and psychedelic mushrooms, let me know. Call or send a text to 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, and of course, I always love to receive your letters so you could also drop something in the post. That address is Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Until the next time our paths cross, may you care for your health while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.